May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So as you know, Bonnie and I for a number of years did Te Rau Māori courses down at the Wānanga, the Wā. And uh, in one of those courses, um, each week we were often given a whakatoki or a problem to translate, which was the easy part, and then interpret, which was often the hard part. And one of the whakatoki that I remember is Fire te iti kahorangi ki te tuahu koe mehe maunga tete, which means something like aim for the smallest but most precious treasure or, you know, Jesus talked about a pearl, that kind of thing, the iti kahorangi. But if you can't aim that high, go for the highest mountain, he maunga tete. Well, what really interested me about that was the conversation we had around that as we tried to interpret it, but then apply it. And so the people in our, we were in table groups and then across the class, saw this as a journey for life, which it can well be, and how our priorities might change over life from initially from cars and good jobs and house and money. Um, Bonnie and I didn't identify too well with the car thing, but the rest of it, yes, maybe although it was always church-related. What is a good job in the church? don't think there is one. To, uh, well, apart from being vicar of this parish, that's probably a good job. Uh, to, um, and then as priorities change, to things like whānau and education and marae and the wider community, all of which was good. But it seemed to be all about them starting point and going from that point, which is okay, but it felt like, from my point of view, that it needed something more, something bigger. It felt like all the conversation was around he maonga tete, and we never quite made it to what he iti kahurangi might be. In fact, we couldn't even imagine what that might be. It felt like our imagination was holding us back. And all those good things were as far as we could go. It was limited by being about me and my life and anything loftier than that, like changing the world, for example, was just too far. To go further, we needed a different or a bigger frame of reference. And that all sounds very judgmental, but if I'm honest, I suspect that most of the time I'm no different, and I suspect that most of us are no different as well. We spend most of our time aiming for very, very similar kinds of things. But one of the things about Lent is that it offers us an opportunity to re-examine what it is we aim for, and maybe invites us to consider something bigger, to invite us to a different or bigger frame of reference. And I talk about that because this morning I think that's what's going on on that very odd gospel reading that we had just read. And to be honest, it is quite odd, isn't it? So, some Greeks, and there's a lot of disagreement in the commentaries about who these Greeks were. So, some commentators would say, and I read all of these in the ones that I read, said this was clearly some Greekized, that's not a real word, or we might call them Hellenized Jews from the diaspora. So, they were Jews who become very Greek in their language and their outlook and their dress, etc. Uh, others said that they were Greeks who had become Jews. So Greeks, like 
originally came from Greece about 300 years earlier, but they're the people who kind of came through this part of the world um, with Alexander the Great. So the Greek culture was the dominant culture around this part of the world. And then um, some people say, well, they were just non-Jewish Gentiles, and this is the story about how Jesus' message went out to the Gentiles, uh, and they were more receptive than the Jews, um, which begs the question, what were they doing in Jerusalem for the festival? But we're not going to go there. So it could be any or all of those people. Anyhow, some Greeks, whoever they were, went to Philip, who clearly comes from a very Gentile part or Greek part of Palestine. Um, which is why they talk about him being from Bethsaida, which means he sounds and looks like a Greek. So you could tell the different people groups by how they talked and how they dressed, kind of like today. And, you know, that's one of the things we don't like about it when new immigrants come here and keep their old dress and still don't speak English like us or at all. So you could tell who people were by their dress and by their sound. And Philip clearly sounds like a Hellene, a Greek. So Philip then goes to Andrew, because in John's Gospel, Andrew is the first disciple, and then they go and see Jesus, and John doesn't tell us whether the Greeks are there or not, and they ask, they tell Jesus there are some Greeks who want to see him, and Jesus doesn't respond with, sure, that would be nice, or it's nice to meet you, would you like a cup of coffee? Instead, Jesus responds with, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who lose their, lose their life, those who love their life, lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honour. To which the only proper response is, What are you on about? I mean, let's face it, Jesus is blowing their minds. They were aiming for Hemal Matete on a good day, which had something to do with Jesus being the Messiah, and something about God's reign coming in this Messiah, which was going to be really good for them, they hoped, and it was about them and their lives and what they were going to get out of it. And Jesus is saying, we need to aim for something much different. And the trouble was, in Jesus' story, and the trouble was for the, for the disciples, that they knew that there were a lot of people that wanted Jesus dead, even at this point. So, where are we in John's Gospel? We've been jumping around, so it's difficult to keep track of where we're actually up to. Well, in John's Gospel, we're actually very near the end, even though we're only in chapter 12. So, in John's Gospel, in terms of the story, Jesus has returned to the area around Jerusalem because his friend Lazarus has died. And before they came back, they had a little bit of a conversation about what it would mean to go back, and the disciples said... We can't go back because they will kill you. And Jesus says, well, I'm going back. And Thomas says, we will go back with you and die with you. So they know the risks. And then Jesus goes back and he raises Lazarus from the dead, which really annoys the Jerusalem elite. They are not happy about this. 
And so they have a little meeting and they decide that not only do they want Jesus dead, but they want Lazarus dead. Both of them would be great. And then, just to calm things down, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and kind of parades around Jerusalem on that donkey. And all of this is happening, so that was a facetious comment about calming it down, and all of this is happening on the Passover, which is a great festival about, as you know, when the Hebrew people who were slaves in Egypt under the power of this oppressive empire were pulled out of that, rescued from that, saved from that by God, and brought to the promised land. And every Passover, the Romans got pretty titchy because, well, here they were, an oppressive empire, and the people, many of them, saw themselves as slaves. And so every Passover, they saw they were praying that God would rescue them from this oppressive empire. And into the middle of all of this is Jesus riding his donkey with a whole lot of people wanting him dead. And the disciples are really not very sure about where all of this is leading, which means they're very confused about whether they are indeed going to be on the right side of history at this point. And to all of this, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honour. This is not what they were hoping for. This is not what they thought should happen here. And for most of us, it's not what we're hoping for either. They were aiming for Tete, and Jesus is offering them a very unexpected iti kahurangi. And you have to wonder what the Greeks did at this point. They don't get mentioned again. And I suspect they quietly backed away because they didn't want to lose their lives. They thought it would be good to meet this Messiah, this figure who was quite famous, but this was getting way too intense. Now Thomas's words, we will go with you and die with you, were coming back to haunt them. So what's Jesus doing here in this very confusing passage? Well, Confusing given the question that he was asked. Jesus was and is offering a much bigger understanding of God than the people had, and I suspect we have. And I suspect most of us still struggle with what Jesus is offering, offering here. In John's Gospel, we are invited to see God not as all-powerful and not as all-conquering, but all-loving. There are a huge number of Christians who cannot get their heads around that. If you read Facebook pages and things about comments about, about things like that, you'll hear people say, if God is just loving, that's wishy-washy and hippie-ish, and I'm not interested in that. And I'm going, I'm pretty sure that's what the gospel is all about. Just that point. Just that point. No, they still want the all-conquering, all-powerful God who will crush all the people who are bad. 
But that is not the image that Jesus is offering. Jesus is offering a loving God. And when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, we meet God's glory. But God's glory, again, is not in triumphal victory. It's in self-giving, powerless love. That's the moment of God, of Jesus being glorified. And even commentaries want to skip over that and go, well, it's the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. But actually in John's Gospel, it's just the cross. It's just the cross. Sadly, we miss that because we are so keen to move on to the resurrection because the resurrection fits with our understanding of glory. I mean, there it is, the glorified Jesus. And John would go, you've missed the point. The point is, it's at the crucifixion. The resurrection is important because the resurrection says yes to the crucifixion. It says that is the way we have to see God. It's God's affirmation of what went on at the crucifixion. But we're too busy skipping on. The crucifixion is where hope and glory really lies. Well, at least in John's Gospel and in the other Gospels as well. So what is Jesus and John trying to do at this point? Were they trying to broaden... Jesus was trying to broaden his disciples' understanding of what all this was about. They were after an all-conquering, all-powerful God who was going to come and remove the Romans and they were going to be part of the winners and they were going to reap the benefits. And Jesus was saying, that's the wrong thing. We need to be not going for hemanga tete, we're going for he iti kahorangi, the precious jewel. And we find that through the crucifixion. And John is saying the same things to us. They are both trying to broaden our understanding of the character of God. The character of God we find in Jesus' life and in his death. And that character, as I've said repeatedly, is about generosity and justice and love and mercy and healing and compassion. And a God who is not just interested in changing individual lives, but how whole communities function. A God who shatters the darkness that blinds us and all to all that we to to who we are, who we are supposed to be, and shatters all that binds us, allowing us to live again as people made in the image of God. In John's Gospel, the cross is portrayed as the ultimate sign. It acts like a battle standard. So that all those who follow the Christ can look to it and reorientate themselves by it and understand their place in relation to it. The crucifixion in John's Gospel was the moment in which our imaginations were changed, were broadened, if we were willing. And we become a new people marked by generosity and justice and love and mercy and healing and compassion. And the story we heard this morning is the moment in the Gospel where Jesus turns his attention to that (coughs) moment. Chapter 12. From this point on, it's about the crucifixion and then the affirmation of the crucifixion and the resurrection. About 35% of John's Gospel is about 
crucifixion, resurrection. It's a much bigger percentage than the other Gospels. Well, how do we respond to that? Too often it feels like we've domesticated this message and we've domesticated God, made God small again. Reduced the cross to a death that appeased God's anger and allows us back into the God's sight rather than an outrageous act of compassionate and generous love that John talks about. Outrageous and compassionate and generous love that breaks all that blinds blinds us and all that holds us down and allows this world to be all that God hoped for from the beginning. In the crucifixion we are offered te iti kahorangi. Well, it could be offered te iti kahorangi. But too often, on a good day, we choose to climb haumanga, haumanga tete instead. And on a bad day, we're just clambering around the foothills. So what is it we are aiming for? In our lives, in our lives of faith, what is it that shapes our daily lives? What is it that shapes our life as a church, do you think? Have we embraced the invitation to dream of the world as God created it, and to live our lives helping bring that in to fruition? Or are we still climbing Hemangatete? And how does this change how we approach the events of Holy Week and Good Friday?